Good morning, guys. Good to see you today. Hey, take your Bibles and turn to the Sermon on the Mount. Right in the middle of it, Matthew chapter 6. And uh, here we have some very, very important words about how we develop our relationship with God. We know that if you, if you just simply put your trust in Jesus Christ and ask for His forgiveness of your sins and ask that He be your Lord and Savior, you're His. Automatically. Forever. And nothing will come between you and Him. But we also know that that child relationship, that relationship as a brother of Christ and a son of God, is to be developed. And one of the most important areas of development is what we're talking about this morning. Honestly, I think it's, it's, it's the key to the Christian experience, what we're discussing this morning. And uh, Jesus takes it up under the, the general theme in the first half of chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, of true piety, true devotion, true relationship with God, true worship, uh, true love for Him. What does that look like? And last time we saw that it does involve our giving to the poor and our giving in general. Uh, there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. And we're going to see the same thing applies to the issue of prayer. Let's look uh, then at uh, Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 5. And we'll read all the way through uh, verse 17. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen. Gentlemen, prayer is, uh, as John Bunyan said, like breath to the baby. Prayer to the believer is like breath to the baby. As John Calvin said, prayer is, is the chief exercise 
of faith. So the chief expression of our trust in God comes out in our prayer lives. And I I don't mean to depress anybody here because normally whenever we talk about prayer, uh, we're all feeling guilty. Well, look, this uh, this is not to make you feel guilty. It's to help us develop our relationship with God. And we're going to see today how vital prayer is, and we're going to see how vital it is that we do it correctly. Now, if we look at the history of God's people, I think we will see clearly that their number one weapon has always been prayer. The number one way in which they have succeeded in life, the number one way in which they have uh, enjoyed their relationship with God has been through prayer. Just a few examples. You remember when Israel was being delivered from Egypt and 430 years of slavery. Finally, they have a mediator and a leader, Moses, 80 years old, who's taken them out of Egypt. Well, they do just fine until they get to the Red Sea, just a few miles out. And there they got the Red Sea in front of them and bloodthirsty Egyptians behind them. And what do they do? They pray. What does God do? He divides the Red Sea. And they go across, as the hymn writer says, with unmoistened foot. They don't lose a sandal. They don't lose a thing except their enemies, all of them. They get out into the wilderness. And if you've been in the Sinai, as a few of us here have, and you've had that hot air hit you in the face with the sand and grit in it, you know it's a very arid place. They immediately were thirsty. And the only water they could find was brackish water that wasn't suitable for drinking. And they were dying of thirst, and they prayed. What did God do? Water came out of a rock. So they get their water. And then, of course, it's not long before they're complaining about no food. Well, who could complain? If you look at the Sinai, once again, you won't find deer wandering around waiting to be shot with bow and arrow or anything else. There's no food out there. So what do they do? They pray. What happens? Quail come. Manna comes out of heaven and feeds them. They get to the, all the way after 40 years plus, they get to the River Jordan. At flood stage, what do they do? They pray. What does God do? Pile up the waters of the Jordan so that they go across. They get across and they engage many battles. And in Joshua uh, chapter 10, I think it is, they're fighting the Amorite kings and they can't quite finish the job because the day is coming to an end. So what do they do? They pray. Joshua prays. What does God do? He stops the sun. Don't ask me how that happened. Scientifically, I have no idea. But they were given extra hours in the day because they prayed. What happens when the northern uh, tribes of Israel have just gone completely apostate? They've completely gone liberal and assimilated with the surrounding culture, uh, which in their case, our case would be secularism, uh, and in their case was the Canaanite gods. And they had just completely absorbed it into their, the religion of Yahweh. And there are 850 priests who are pastoring all the churches, and they all believe in Baal and Ashtaroth. What does the man do? Well, Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel, and we have a little contest between Elijah, one little prophet, and 850 prophets and priests of Baal and Ashtaroth. And what does Elijah do? He prays. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes his sacrifice. And everybody says, 
Jehovah, he is the Lord. Jehovah, he is God. So thus Elijah's name, Elijah, my God is Jehovah. And what happens uh, when, uh, when, of course, David has to face Goliath? God once again answers prayer because David calls upon God to help him. What happens in the ministry of Jesus? You find that he goes against the greatest odds of all. Here's one, the only one who really understands who he is and what the kingdom is all about. And we find that he prays, he prays, he prays. And God answers his prayers. What do you find in the Apostle Paul's life? Prayer. What do you find today? You know, if you read Billy Graham's uh, autobiography, Just As I Am, you'll be impressed with several things. You'll certainly be impressed by the fact that he constantly surrounded himself with strong, capable men, godly men. He didn't try to do any of this on his own. He was constantly corrected and advised and prayed for by men. The second thing you'll find out about his ministry, he prayed all the time. And if you asked him, if you ask him right now, about his ministry and anything he would do differently, he, he would tell you, I would pray more and preach less. That's what he would say. But his ministry was characterized by prayer. When I look in our city and I see some of the really wonderful things that are going on, I mean, just look in the political realm. We have a mayor in the city and a mayor in the county. They actually like each other. They, yes, sir, and they get along with each other. And they are not trying to divide our city. They're trying to bring our city together. And they're being very responsible, providing good, solid leadership. Now, you may have voted for somebody else, or you may have somebody else you want to run against them. I don't know. I'm not making a political statement. I'm not trying to... I don't think they're being elected this time, are they? Uh, are they? They're not for election. Uh, so, see, I, I don't even know. I'm just saying, I know how bad it is when you have mayors who don't do that. And here God has answered prayer. Because I heard some of you praying. And I pray. God has answered prayer. I look at some of the ministries that are in this uh, city. And, you know, back there, you know, often Larry Lloyd sits. And I'm just thinking about how he and Howard Eddings developed so many ministries in this city. Why? It was a result of prayer. People prayed. We needed help. And some of you have started new ministries. Some of you have gotten involved in very hands-on way in helping the poor in the city. You know what you are? You are the result of prayer. People prayed about this for years and years. I remember Eric Alexander saying that, that uh, he uh, one time realized that uh, he looked around and saw a whole generation, his generation of men in Scotland who were actually preaching the gospel. The Scottish Church, Church of Scotland, has gone very liberal, as you know. But there were some men who were really preaching the gospel. And then it dawned on him. He remembered hearing that his grandparents had prayed right about three years before. There was a revival with prayer for God to raise up pastors about three years before all these guys were born. And he said, it just dawned on me when I looked at this historic prayer revival that just right after that, a whole generation of men were born who ended up being preachers of the gospel. I'm telling you, God answers prayers. I see it all over the place. But often, uh, we're like the man who is up on the, nailing shingles on his very steep roof, three stories up. And he starts to slide off the roof. And he calls out to God, God, help me. I'm getting ready to slide off the roof. And then right before he goes right over the gutters, there's a, there's a big hook there on the gutters. It catches the back of his pants that he's sitting there hanging. And then he looks up to heaven and says, never mind, God, my, my pants got caught on a hook. <laughs> and we're off in that way. God is answering our plea for help and we don't even, we just immediately go to our secular mindset. 
and assume that it's chance, good luck. And we're not open to watching how God is working very powerfully in answers to prayer. Now, John Wesley may have overstated it, but he did say this, God does nothing but in answer to prayer. I think, I think that's an overstatement. But I think it's real close. <coughs> D.L. Moody put it this way. He said that the ones who are making the deepest impress upon this sin-tossed world are, is undoubtedly people of prayer. Now, that's true. That's not an overstatement. When we get to heaven and we want to thank and honor each other for the things that we did, I know that sounds ridiculous right now, but there will be, there will be honor, proper honor given. And I can't wait to honor Moses and honor David. You know, he was a big sinner, but boy, he was a great leader too, wasn't he? Can't wait to honor Isaiah. Can't wait to honor Jeremiah. What a, what a privilege that's going to be. And so we have all these people in our mind, you know, that we want to honor. Maybe your grandmother or somebody. But I'm convinced the ones who will, we'll be honoring the most will be the ones revealed to us as the greatest prayer warriors whose names didn't end up in the church history books because people didn't even know what they were doing. They were doing it quietly, privately behind the scenes. This is where the real action is. That's what we're taught over and over again in the Bible, and we often forget it. Now, before we dig into this text in particular, just keep your finger there. Go back to Isaiah for just a moment and look at Isaiah chapter 16 and just look at one little verse with me. I want you to look at another verse in Isaiah too, but look, this is on page 1271. Twelve seventy one. Look at Isaiah sixteen twelve, and look what Isaiah says about those from Moab who pray. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. He will not prevail. Now. Moab, of course, uh, worshiped false gods. And here's what Isaiah is saying. Moab is wasting his time. Let me be very explicit and provocative, I'm sure, but just to make my point. For those who do not pray with faith in God as our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ in front of the West Wailing Wall, they're wasting their time. They're wasting their time. They're not praying to a God who exists. The God who exists is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only God there is. There is no other God. And anybody who prays without praying to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is wasting their time. Those who will make the Hajj to Saudi Arabia because the fifth pillar of Islam is once in your life to make pilgrimage to the holy city. And they march around the Kaaba for a week, you know, or march, they go around it seven times or something like that. Let me tell you something. They're wasting their time. There's no God there. They're not praying to anybody. They're praying to themselves. They're wasting their time. They will not prevail. There's, there's no answer from someone who's not there. You knock on the door and there's no one home. When I go into the Buddhist world, 
and I see those with their saffron robes. And they're... They're wasting their time. They're praying to a God who doesn't exist. When I go on the river Ganges, which some of you may have done, and I see the Brahmin sitting along the side of the Ganges, leading people in their little rituals, and they have little things they do, and they go through certain, you know, move this thing over here, move that thing over here, and they have all the liturgy memorized in a very impressive way, kind of like at a Masonic lodge. You know, they just know all the liturgy. You think, wow, that Brahmin, he really knows his liturgy. I was walking along the Ganges with Dr. Raju Abraham, who, of course, knows Hinduism very well. And I was amazed. He, he just got, while the Brahmin was doing all of his liturgy with this guy that wanted him to help him pray for something from one of the 300 million gods, Raju just said, what are you doing? Who are you praying to? What makes you think he'll answer you? I was going, Raju, come on, let's go this way. He was like the prophet Jeremiah. Just asking some really good questions. Who are you praying to? What makes you think that he'll answer? What good are those little, little, little sacrifices you're doing there in the dirt? What good is that going to do? And what good does it do if we offer prayers to a, in some amorphous direction to some God who might or might not be up there? What good does that do anybody? It does no good at all. Therefore, you can understand perhaps my lack of zeal for public prayers that are indistinct. I mean, the prayer in school issue could be an issue if we knew who you were praying to, if we knew that the prayers would make any difference. But if you cite some mumbo-jumbo, some liturgy to some unknown God, that God doesn't exist, and so you're wasting our time. I'd rather you learn arithmetic. And likewise, if we go into public places and people ask us to pray and we pray to some God who's ill-defined, we're wasting their time and our time and we're demeaning the whole idea of prayer, which is to a God who exists and who hears the prayers of His children. He doesn't hear the prayer of the Moabites because they're not praying to Him. He hears the prayers of His children who pray to Him. And He answers them. That's what John says in 1 John 5, 14, 15. Check it out. That when we pray according to His will, when we His children, and John's epistle's purpose is to remind us we really are His children. And we need to know that. So if you pray as His child, He hears you. And He will grant an answer to what He hears. Now you say, well, I've been praying a long time and I haven't seen answers like that. Well, let me tell you something. You've been praying a long time. So how old are you? You're 40? You're 50? You're 80? You've been praying? Okay, you've been praying 80 years and you've been a little disappointed. Well, let me tell you something. We just sang a song that said, A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone. So how long are you going to wait for the answers to your prayer? Five minutes? Fifty years? A hundred years? Well, let me tell you something. A hundred years is like that to God. When His children pray... He hears them and He answers their prayers. And when Jesus Christ comes back, our mediator, our deliverer, 
to second Moses, when he comes back and divides the Red Sea for you and you're taken up into the presence of God and you see there what he's done for you, you'll say, oh my, I didn't even know how to pray like this. I would never have thought to ask for this. And he'll answer beyond, as Paul says, your wildest dreams, beyond your imagination. Now there's an answer to prayer. That's what God does with prayer. He hears you and he answers you. And peculiarly, he hears you as his son through Jesus Christ. When you trust in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you gain access. You didn't have access before. He says you were strangers, you were foreigners, you were separated from the covenant. You weren't in relationship with God outside of Christ. You didn't, he didn't hear your prayer. Oh, he heard the sound of it. Of course, he hears everything in that sense. But the Bible, when it says he hears your prayer, it means he hears it with the intent of answering it. And he wasn't hearing you before. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you gain an enormous privilege that your Father hears you. Now, you have a peculiar privilege, and we can screw it up. Here's what we've got to look at. We've been given a privilege, and we can screw it up. Now, how do we screw it up? Well, right here you see in the text. Well, that'll take us back, won't it? It'll take us back to Matthew chapter 6. Right here in the text, we'll see how we can mess it up. Through hypocrisy. When we're praying hypocritically, what happens is everything about that prayer is sideways. Everything about that prayer is horizontal. And as uh, Frederick uh, Bruner Frederick Dale Bruner said about prayer, prayer must be vertical, to be honest. So we want to talk about honest prayer that's this way. Hypocritical prayer is this way. You know, I was in, I was in a political gathering uh, that I was invited to, to offer prayer. And of course, you know me, I pray in Jesus' name. But there was another person who had a very eloquent prayer. I mean, kind of the kind of prayer that makes you think, oh, gosh, I'm supposed to follow that. I'm just going to say, dear Jesus, you know, help us. And this guy prayed a very eloquent prayer. And uh, after he prayed, everyone applauded. <laughs> you know, I was tempted to applaud myself. I thought, that's a magnificent prayer. And uh, some people pray that way. They pray so that I can say something to you or I want to really be inspiring for you or I want to impress you. It's a horrible thing, a horrible thing to pervert the intimate relationship you've got with your father and to pervert that relationship so that you can use your conversation with him to get brownie points from other men. What a perversion. How would, how would you feel if the only reason someone wanted to be your friend was to be able to drop your name continually. You say, well, nobody wants to drop my name. Well, there are probably some that would. Drop it in the post office or something. I don't know. But what if, what if people treated you that way? That, and that's what God is saying. You're not, you're not coming to me as a child. You're just using me. You really don't know me. If you knew me, you'd talk to me. So what we want to look at in this text is how can, we, how can we actually enjoy the gift of prayer? Because hypocrisy kills prayer. 
Look, we've got to take a minute to look at this. Uh, Leave your finger there again. Go back to Psalms. Sorry, we're doing the yellow pages today, walking through. But but look at Psalm 66. I want you to see a a verse. I want you to see several verses in the Old Testament. I'm not making this up uh, about the power of hypocrisy. This is on page 1016. Psalm 66, 18 The psalmist says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I have unrepentant sin, that is, if if I am living the life of an unbeliever, but hypocritically professing to be a believer, the Lord doesn't even listen. It never gets through. The only prayer the Lord hears from an unbeliever is the prayer of repentance when he's asking for God's mercy and seeking to become a child of God. That prayer he hears. No other prayer. Turn uh, to Proverbs for a moment, uh, the next book over, and look at Proverbs 28, verse 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So it's not just neutrally avoided. It's actually an abomination before the Lord if we're praying while also violating intentionally the law of God. It's a presumption of privilege rather than a right use of privilege if we're in unrepentance. One other verse in the Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Make that Isaiah chapter 1. This would be on page 1241. And look what he says, even to Israel, his own people, who are turning their back on him and apostatizing. In Isaiah 1.15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood, etc. Okay, now back to Matthew 6. You can see that for the, for the other religions, they're wasting their time. For those who have been born among God's people, who are children of believers, but they turn their back on God, they're wasting their time unless they pray the prayer of repentance. And then for those of us who are in the church, if we go to church and go through the rituals and and so on, but we really don't trust in Christ and we really don't give Him our lives, then our prayers too are hindered. And you can look in 1 Peter 3, can't you, where... Wives are given instructions to honor and submit to their husbands. And you know, that's not, a, not an easy set of verses there. 1 Peter 1, 1, uh, 3, 1 through 6. Remember we may, you may remember we studied that several years ago. Then in verse 7, I think it is, he says to the husbands, Be gentle with your wives. Otherwise, remember, your prayers are hindered. Yikes! So you want to know... Why have my prayers not been answered in more visible, dramatic ways or clearer ways to me? It could be 
your lack of obedience in your key relationships. Could be. I don't know. It's something to think about. In other words, we've been given enormous privilege, but we must cultivate using that privilege in a way that honors God and brings us the highest joy that comes from it. So let's look then at our text, and we'll see first of all in verses 5 through 15, our prayers must be sincere. Let's let not our prayers be hindered. Let's let them be sincere prayers. That means unhypocritical. And in verses 5 and 6, you see that they must be sincerely motivated. Sincerely motivated. So that our prayer life is not for the purpose of impressing other people. And for those of us who lead in public prayer, this can be a very dangerous thing. I do suggest if you lead in public prayer, it's a good thing to prepare your prayer. Just like it's a good thing to prepare your Bible lesson. Uh, I notice that some of you, when you lead us here on Thursday mornings, you actually have notes for your prayer. I think that's a good thing. I'm not saying you have to do that to have a meaningful prayer, but I think that's very appropriate. And I'll tell you why. I, I've, I've got a couple of pastor friends one who was invited into the Oval Office to spend an hour with George W. Bush. I have another one who was invited recently to spend an hour in the Oval Office with President Obama. Now, in both cases, when I asked them, what was your strategy? They said, well, we asked, we, we asked people who had had access and find out how to do it first. You notice? They were, they were preparing their prayer. And they, they said, I found out how to do it, and here's what you have to do. You have to take the thing that you care about the most and boil it down to one sentence and say it about three times. Get it all boiled down. What is it you really want the president to do and boil it down to as few words as you can possibly get it? And they said that, that's the way they prepared. And so in both cases, both of my friends, they knew exactly the appeal they wanted to make. And they made it from about three different directions with about you know, something less than a paragraph each. They were prepared to do that. Now, if my friends would prepare to meet the president, which I think we all would do, we want to prepare to meet the Lord. We want to, and I think it's fine, especially if you're leading public prayer, you realize, if I'm, if I'm in my private prayer closet, I can say, Lord, and he said, I heard you perfectly. I know exactly what you mean. And, and he does, because the Spirit prays with groans, prays with utterings that are too deep for words. The Spirit does that for us, and I can just groan before the Lord, and He knows what I, what I need. But if I get up and say, let us pray, <laughs> you say, hey, next, <laughs> get somebody up there who can lead us in prayer. And the reason is, I am serving you as well as serving the Lord. And I serve you by expressing your thoughts. And I use plural pronouns. I don't say I in public prayer. I say we. And I'm collecting your souls and your concerns and on your behalf lifting our concerns to the Lord. And I need to speak in clear sentences so that you can say the amen at the end of the prayer because you knew what I said. And you can say, yeah, Lord, that's exactly what I mean. Amen to that. 
And so I don't want to split my infinitives or dangle my participles. I want to make the sentences so you can follow along and join in the prayer. So there's, I do have to be more careful. I do have to prepare before I lead a group in prayer. But there's a danger in that, isn't there? Because then I go from preparing the prayer so that it fulfills the purpose I just stated to preparing the prayer so that you'll say, my, that preacher's articulate. He's eloquent. Or, or you might, even better, you might say, boy, he really knows the Lord. Ooh, ooh, that's bad. As Matthew Henry once said, piety from the teeth outward is an easy thing. Piety in the heart is a difficult thing. We must be sincerely motivated. Watch very carefully not to be hypocritical in your prayers because if you are, you'll end up with the same uh, comment that was made by the Boston Globe uh, in the 19th century about someone who was praying at Park Street, a very famous preacher. And the editor, the, the, the commentator on the, on the service at Park Street Church said, a greater prayer has never been prayed to any Boston congregation. And sometimes that's the way our prayers are. They're prayed to the congregation and not to the Lord Himself. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, Of all the things in the world that, that stink in the nostrils of men, hypocrisy is the worst. And so often we take our prayer moments and we pervert them. You know, some of us have been to mayor's prayer breakfasts, haven't we? And some, sometimes you go to those things you think, Did we pray at that thing? <laughs> You know, we introduced this mayor and this mayor and everybody gave standing ovations and we talked about this and we talked about that and I think we spent about five minutes at the end in prayer. And so we just use the word prayer so broadly without really thinking what it means to us. So it's sincerely motivated and that means that your father who is in secret will reward you. You are looking to the father in your prayer and you're asking him to give the answer. You know, sometimes I've been in churches where someone was leading in prayer and you could tell that halfway through that prayer, they, they realized they forgot to make an important announcement during the announcement time. So, Father, thank you for our fellowship supper that will be here at 5.30 on Wednesday night for which everyone has to have tickets at the, before they leave the service today. Thank you, Lord, for that. It's amazing how we... <laughs> we mess around with prayer. Uh, or we'll have prayer po- protests. You know, let's have a prayer rally. Or let's, i tell you what let's do. Let's show our support for some important cause and let's all line up on Poplar and get down on our knees so that everyone who drives by will see we're praying. Think, I think maybe we just perverted prayer. Uh, is anyone there really thinking about the Father? No, you're thinking about the cause. And how you want to impress people for your cause. You're not thinking about the Father. Don't call it prayer. Call it, call it a protest or something. Notice secondly in verses 7 and 8. It must be sincerely personal. Don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And the Gentiles were much like the Hindus along the Ganges. They, they had all their gods and goddesses. And they had all their rituals and their mumbo jumbo. And liturgies. And they had many important words that they said over and over again. And, you know, you can also see an example of it, can't you? With Elijah. You remember what the 850 prophets and priests of Baal and Ashtaroth did? 
they danced around, they cut themselves, they prayed all morning, they shouted. And, and <clears throat> you remember how Elijah taunted them. Now look, we show respect for all human beings. I don't care what religion they uh, uh, ascribe to. Uh, we show respect for all human beings, but we don't show respect for all religions. I don't. And uh, so I'll taunt the other religions, not people. I won't show disrespect for them, but for their religions... Their, their religions aren't, they, they're meaningless. They have no God. And so Elijah said to those priests and, and prophets, well, why don't, you, <clears throat> why, don't you, why don't you pray a little louder and wake him up? He probably's taking a nap. And then, and then Elijah said, maybe he's going to the bathroom, just give him a break. Well, I mean, Hebrew suggests that's what he's saying. He's relieving himself. You're God. And, you know, if I'd been there with Elijah, I'd say, Elijah, I'd cool it down just a little bit, son. I mean, we're surrounded by these vicious people, you know. Cool it. But Elijah had confidence that his Lord, his God hears prayer. And then when it was Elijah's turn, you notice his prayer was very short. It was very direct. And it was completely dependent upon God and not himself. And <laughs> fire came from heaven. You don't have to pray many words and they don't have to be eloquent. If you're leading in public prayer, it should be in a way that's not distracting so that people can follow. It does demand some good grammar if we're leading in in public prayer to the best of our ability. But aside from that, when we're looking to the Lord, we just talk to Him. You know, I had a young woman who told me the best lesson she ever had in prayer was when her mother was dying and she was encouraging her daughter to pray. And her daughter said, Mom, I don't even know how to pray. And here's what her mother said to her. Honey, just talk to him. Just talk to him. Hypocrites pray as though really there is no God. Think about it. If the President of the United States is here, and I talk to you how about how, wouldn't it be great if the President were sometime here? And I tell you all the wonderful things about the president. And you're saying, why don't you just talk to him? He's right there. And we talk about prayer. And when we're praying, we often think more of who's listening to us than we do. I mean, I'm talking about humans listening to us than God listening to us. It's amazing how we miss the privilege of prayer. He's saying, make it sincerely motivated. Keep it sincerely personal. And remember this about me personally. I know what you need before you ask me. I already know. You're my son. Just talk to me. I know what you need. Make your request known. I like to hear it. Because I'm your daddy. And some of you might say, why does he even want us to pray? He knows what we need. Why doesn't he just give it? Here's why. It pleases God when you trust him. It's that simple. The way in which you chiefly glorify God is by trusting Him. Because when you trust Him, you're saying He exists. He rewards those who diligently seek Him. He is good and gracious. He loves sinners. I trust Him. And with your trusting Him, you're displaying the glory of God's grace. And the chief way, as Calvin rightly said, that you display your faith, your trust in Him, is by prayer. I was talking to a woman 
10 days ago. She has four children. Two of them are naturally uh, born and two of them are adopted. And she said something very interesting to me about her adoptive children. She said, with my two natural children, they ask me for stuff all the time. Mama, 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 can I have this? Can I have that? Well, mama, mama, can I have this? And she said, my two adoptive children that I adopted around the age of five or six years of age, they're very slow to ask me. And she said, you know, that really bothers me. It grieves me that they don't ask me like my natural children do. And she said, it took me a while to realize why they weren't asking me. It's because they haven't learned yet to trust me. And she said, I didn't quite understand why I was so annoyed until I understood why it is that they're not asking me. Because I want them to trust me. And they're not trusting me. And she said, through this experience, Pastor, she said, I have learned about why the Father wants us to ask Him for stuff. Because you only ask Him if you really trust Him. If you disabuse yourself of your own abilities to accomplish the most important things in life, you realize finally, as a kid, you can't do it. And you turn to Him not only because you can't do it, but you turn to Him because He will do it. You trust Him to do that. That's what pleases the Father. And so He says, please do not pervert this childlike gift I've given you. Use it with right and sincere motivation and make it sincerely personal and entrust me. Now, thirdly, we see in verses 9 through 15, it must be sincerely purposeful. Now, it's almost a shame for us to take just 10, 15 minutes to talk about the Lord's Prayer, but that's exactly what we're going to do. If my friends were as careful about how they would petition the President of the United States, how much more are we to be careful about how we petition the Lord of the universe. Now, it's true what my friend's mother told her. Just talk to him. And when I have a a three-year-old granddaughter who calls me Papa, she can say anything she wants to, and it's the most adorable thing you ever heard in your life. It absolutely charms my socks off. But if when she's 18, she's talking that way, my heart will be grieved because she's not grown at all. And so it's okay for us to pray any way that we will, as long as we're in kindergarten. But then as you grow and get to know your father better, don't you think your conversations mature? Don't you think that your knowledge of him grows and therefore the way you speak to him and the things you ask him for grow? Because you realize as you get older that your father has other concerns that you didn't realize when you were four years old. You thought... When you were four, his only purpose was to put your food on the table and clothes on your back. Oh, but when you grow up and you realize, oh, he cares about this city. He, he invested in the Christian mission. And you say, oh, well, I want to get involved in that too. As you grow, you learn more about your father's heart. Same thing with God. As you grow, you learn more about him. And therefore, your requests change. And therefore, you also change the way in which you approach Him because you learn more what pleases Him, what honors Him, how to show respect for Him. And you want to do that because you love Him dearly. That's the way it goes with prayer. And so when Jesus told us, told us, don't just pray with a whole series of words. Don't just be wordy, wordy, wordy in your prayers. No, be purposeful in your prayer. And then He says, pray like this. 
Now, this prayer is very carefully crafted, as you would imagine. If Jesus is going to give us a model prayer, you would expect it's very carefully crafted. And this one is. The Lord's Prayer, traditionally, we, say, we, we label it like this. There is a prelude, our Father. That's just simply the address. And then there are six petitions, six requests. The first three have to do with you, Father. The next three have to do with us in the plural. And then there's a closing that's not in the ESV nor the NIV. And the reason uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The reason that's not there is because it probably wasn't there in the original manuscript. It was added later, it appears. Now we have, as you know, thousands of manuscripts. We have some very early ones. The earliest and most reliable ones do not have that closing, but we call that the conclusion. Now let's just look, let's look at it in this order. And I've put here the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, uh, teaching about the Lord's Prayer here for you so you can later on look more at this. If you want to teach sometime on the Lord's Prayer, uh, it's a wonderful text to, to help you in your teaching. But notice, first of all, that if our prayers are purposeful, they are for His glory. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. That's the first petition. The, we, we address Him as Father. The greatest privilege any of us would have is to be able to call the Creator, Sustainer, and Judge of this universe our own Father. And that's exactly what we do. The greatest name for God is Father. In the Bible. And specifically, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that we, we have Him as Father because we're in Christ. Christ is the one and only begotten Son. He's eternally begotten of the Father. When you enter into Christ through faith, union with Christ, you enter into the love relationship of the Trinity Himself. And so you become a son in Christ. And therefore, you have access to the Father because Christ has access to the Father and you're in Christ. So you have the privilege of calling Him Father. No one else can really truly call Him Father but those who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And notice the first petition. Hallowed be your name. Your first concern in your prayer, your first concern is the sanctity of of His name. The glory of His reputation. The honor of His being. And that's the reason I can't imagine offering a prayer to some nondescript God. That is a disgrace to His name. He has a name. Hallowed, sanctified, be your name. That's the first concern. If that's all you do in prayer, you did the most important thing. Sanctify His name. Honor His name. His name is the summary of His being. You, you know, in, in, uh, historically, in theology proper, theologians would simply take the names of God in the Bible and just unpack them because that tells you who God is and what He's done. He's the God and Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you look at the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and you see that's the God who exists, the God who did that. And you get all the way up to the New Testament, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who God is. Look at Christ. See what what God has done in Him. That's the God who exists. So when we proclaim His name, we proclaim who He is and what He's done. So 
Hallowed be thy name. Most important thing in prayer. Secondly, it's not only for his glory, but it's for his kingdom. Your kingdom come. So our first concern is about the honor of God. Our second concern is about his kingdom in this world and in the world to come. His kingdom. And the problem with human men is they're thinking about their kingdoms. And most of our prayers have to do with, Lord, would you please get on my side and help my kingdom out? Would you please prosper my kingdom? Notice, before we talk about our kingdoms and our concerns, our first concern is the sanctity of His name and the welfare of His kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come right now, spiritually, in this broken world. Your kingdom come in my heart so that I'm completely under the rule of your kingship and your kingdom come ultimately with the return of Jesus Christ. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. All of this, your kingdom come. It's His kingdom. His kingdom is your agenda. You have no other agenda. That's it. Thirdly, for His pleasure, your will, your pleasure be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, sometimes my charismatic friends will tell me, you know, if you're praying for healing... Don't say if it's the Lord's will. Don't say, Lord, if it's your will, he'll heal so-and-so. Because it is the Lord's will. Will. Well, look, I know it's the Lord's will to heal us. And he will. When Jesus comes back, let me guarantee you, every single one of you, all of your arthritis is going to be gone. Your cancer will be gone. All your family friends will be completely healthy. No more sickness, no more sin. It'll be a great world when Jesus comes back. But I wasn't praying about that. I'm praying about right now. Lord, would you please heal my friend? And the promises of God don't tell me clearly he'll get healed now. I know he's going to get healed. I just don't know when. But I'm asking to heal him him now. And in that case, I do think it's very appropriate for me to say, Lord, if this pleases you, heal my friend. Because you know what? I'm more concerned, God, about your kingdom and your pleasure than I am the pleasure of my friend. It's not that I don't love my friend, but I love you first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. The second is like unto it. But the first commandment is love the Lord. Seek His will. And when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, how did He pray? Lord, deliver me from this. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my pleasure, not my will, but Your will be done. And that's how He went to the cross, praying, Lord, if it's Your will. And that's how He got to the cross. And you're not going to pray, Lord, make my life miserable. Lord, give me suffering. No, here's how you're going to pray. Lord, nevertheless, not your will but mine. I mean... (laughs) That is how we pray, isn't it? I just did it. There you go. Not your will but mine. But we pray not my will but yours. And that's how our suffering comes to us and how our persecutions come. It's not because we're praying, Lord, please give me persecutions. No, we're saying, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done. Now, I'm going to follow your kingdom and I'm going to seek to do your will and you do with me as you please. Now, I ask you, Lord, please grant me your mercy. Please protect me. Heal, Please heal. Please guard and protect. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. That's how Jesus taught us to pray for the Lord's will. Fourthly, for His provision. And what you're saying here is, 
I cannot put bread on my table. And some of you think you can because you've been doing it for so long. You think you're smart, you have a lot of money in the bank, and you can provide for yourself. There's a hurricane named after someone I know. And if you'll look at our friends on the coast of New Jersey, they're just in tears. They're just wiped out. They say, I've never seen anything like this in my life. God can do that in a moment. And the things you think you can do for yourself, you cannot do for yourself. What are you going to do if, if the earthquake really finally hits and everything is leveled and your family is gone and your life is destroyed? What are you going to do then? Go to the bank? Just go to the refrigerator? No. We're completely dependent upon Him. Give us this day. I'm not asking for tomorrow. I'm just praying for today. Let the day's own troubles be sufficient for the day. Give us this day our daily bread. And that's the reason that our tradition has been that we pray at meals. Because we acknowledge that with all of our wealth, this little biscuit that's put in front of me, Lord, is from your hand. And I do not presume for a moment to think that it's my wit or my success or it just naturally happens. No, Lord, it's by your gracious providence you've put this biscuit in front of me that I have anything to eat today. And let yourselves remain poor, gentlemen. I don't care how much money you have. Let yourselves remain poor before the Lord because you are. You're poor, blind, pitiable, naked. You have nothing apart from Him. Give us this day our daily bread. Fifthly, we pray for His mercy and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts. Some people say, you know, the Lord has forgiven sins through Jesus Christ, His work on the cross. Why would you keep praying for forgiveness? He's already forgiven you. Why bother? You're just you're expressing doubt about the atonement when you ask Him to forgive you your sins. I have a simple answer. The Lord taught me to pray and forgive us our debts. He taught me to pray that. He taught His disciples to pray that and He was going to die on the cross for that. And John says, after Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the grave and ascended into heaven, John says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Gentlemen, if you sin, even with an eternal atonement already made for you and already applied to your heart forever and ever, it is appropriate, it's most appropriate for you to acknowledge your sin and your eternal debt to the Lord and your request that He cleanse you of all of its consequences in your life. Lord, forgive us our debts. For we are indebted to you. It's appropriate and it's right for a son who knows what his father has done for him and who wants to be cleansed of sin continually. It has to do with our relationship with God and it has to do with those massive offenses that we've committed against him even after he saved us. We continue to sin against him and we're asking him, please forgive us. Restore the intimacy of our relationship. It's a very lively relationship so we pray for his mercy and notice that we, forgive, we ask for forgiveness because we have forgiven our debtors. We'll get into this later on in the spring when we get to Matthew 18. You'll see the connection between an unhypocritical request for forgiveness and a sincere forgiveness of all of those who have sinned against you. If you have not forgiven those who sin against you, you are praying hypocritically and your prayers are not heard. It's that simple. So you've been given a massive privilege of prayer and you're not using it because you'd rather hold out a grievance, an offense, 
hatred for that person. And I know we've been treated pretty roughly from time to time. I know some of you have. I'm just simply saying if you want fellowship with your father, it'll only be because you know what a massive sinner you are and you know what a great savior he is and you'll know how indebted you are to him. And having been indebted to him and having all your debts canceled, you will then say, how in the world can I look at my neighbor and hold an infinitely smaller debt against them? That's the logic. So it's for his mercy and then sixthly and lastly, for his protection. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So, yes, indeed, the Lord leads us into all of our trials. But we pray, Lord, please protect us. According to your promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that you'll not give us any temptation that is not common to man or that would overwhelm us. Lord, please answer that prayer in my case. Lord, I'm trying to cut off my connection to pornography. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Don't let me get before a computer screen when nobody else is around and I'm in a, tempted, in, in a moment. Lord, make me a disciplined man so that I, I take on covenant eyes so all my sites that I visited this week are mailed to my brother in Christ, emailed to my brother so he can check the sites I'm on. Lord, protect me, guard me, help me. We're in a battle. We're in warfare. We have to pray for the, the general to guard and protect his soldiers. And that's what the Lord's Prayer teaches us to do. We'll pick up with fasting next time. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the gift of prayer. Thank You for the promises pertaining to prayer. And thank You, Lord, for teaching us how to pray rightly so that we actually are heard and we actually are rewarded with intimate fellowship with You and with the answers to prayers as we engage in Your kingdom, both in our hearts and in this world. Lord, please make of us men of prayer, for we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.